This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. As we navigate the current climate of our country, we as parents have a responsibility to teach our children about race and how to be aware of injustices, stand up for what's right, and be proactive as anti-racist citizens of the world. On today's episode, I am joined by the hosts of the Dear White Women podcast, Sarah Blanchard and Misasha Graham. They are Harvard grads who have been best friends for over two decades and have very mixed race families they want to advocate for. They're smart, real, funny, and ready to make a change. Dear White Women is an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to starting real discussions for busy people who wish they knew more about race, identity, and happiness in the United States. Everyone is different and everyone has value, and we each have the power to influence our communities. Through their episodes and resources, Sarah and Masasha are helping us reflect on our nation's history and current events and personal experiences with race, justice, and more, so we leave the world a little better than we found it. Sarah Blanchard helps communities build connections through conscious conversations, which she does as a podcaster, facilitator, TEDx speaker, writer, and consultant. Having worked at Goldman Sachs and having helped teach positive psychology at Harvard, Sarah speaks the language of traditional accomplishment. But for over 10 years, Sarah has also pursued the science and techniques of well-being as a life coach, mother, and author of Flex Mom. In addition to emceeing events like the World Happiness Summit and facilitating meaningful panel discussions about race, Sarah co-founded and co-hosts Dear White Women, a social justice podcast that highlights the humanity in the history, race, and happiness of the United States. Ms. Sasha Graham has spent her life attempting to bridge gaps, both professionally and personally, and foster understanding among groups of people. Ms. Sasha is an accomplished attorney specializing in intellectual property law and cross-border work with Asia, with over 10 years spent at several international law firms honing these skills. She is currently a special counsel at a Bay Area law firm, having stepped away from big law to focus more on being present at home. Misasha is also passionate about diversity, equality, and inclusion in the practice of law, as well as in her communities. Besides being a mega former instructor, she is the proud mom of two very active young boys and the co-host of the Dear White Women podcast. Sarah and Misasha, thank you so much for joining me today. So good to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
Tell us a little bit about your families and motherhood journeys and how they really played into your very successful career trajectories. Well, for me, this is Sarah. I had all of this desire to sort of follow the American dream, right? Do all the Ivy League and go to the international bank and do all this hard charging work and felt really good about it. But I knew in the back of my head, I grew up with a mom who was a stay-at-home mom. And my husband is in a career where he's gone. He travels a lot. Mm. And when we wound up, you know, getting together and thinking about having kids, I realized that that lifestyle of working 12 to 14 hour days was not going to mesh with this idea of motherhood. And so I was really lucky that I found life coaching and sort of got recertified and, and redirected that way. But a few years into having that practice and really loving it, I had my first child and she just didn't want to be away from mommy. Like she didn't understand, I don't know, for whatever reason, from the time she was little, she really did not, uh, whether it was because my husband was traveling or whatever, like it when I wasn't with her. So I actually wound up staying home for about seven years and you know did a couple of side projects here and there that kept me kind of going. Mm-hmm. And it was only when my youngest child was in kindergarten where I had sort of school to take them. And then I had time again to really kickstart my brain again and relaunch mom 2.0 career, basically. That's wonderful. And I know that we all kind of have to make these shifts when we have, um, especially multiple kids. Me, Sasha. Similar to Sarah, I am the daughter of an immigrant father, and it was drilled into me very early that we were going to follow sort of a, a career trajectory that was going to end up in a big professional career. So my parents got what they wanted. I'm a lawyer and my brother's a doctor. So (laughs) we're living that Asian parent dream. Totally. But like Sarah, also, my career path wasn't exactly like how I envisioned it, you know, maybe at 22. I had spent a lot of time in Japan and had done finance work in Japan before I went to law school. And so thought that what I really was passionate about and still am passionate about is cross-border work and how can we work and bring people together. And I loved the international component of it. I wanted to do work with Japan. I wanted to use my language skills. And then I got married and I started having kids and things changed a lot. I remember, especially at the end, right when I was leaving sort of big law firm life, I would go to work, I would drive home to be home by five to relieve our nanny. And then I would be there until both kids, one was a baby at the time and one was two, went to sleep. And then I would drive back to work so that I could work on expert reports and what we needed for an upcoming trial until somewhere between 1 a.m. and maybe 3 or 4 a.m. And then I drive home in time to take a shower, you know, maybe sleep a little and then see my sons so I could get up and do it or not even get up, just be there and do it again. Oh, my gosh. That was not going to (laughs) work. And so my husband's also an attorney. We decided that one attorney living that life in the family is is more than good enough. So I went through a, a bunch of different things, but it's all been more on my time, on my schedule, and it's allowed for balance, especially right now, which is really important. Can you share your experiences with racism um, and how they've impacted in your family? I mean, Misasha being married to a black man will probably have a whole variety of stories on this 
front. The one thing personally that shaped me as a child that I think made me more empathetic to a lot of this is, you know, being the child of a Japanese immigrant and a white, like American man. I spent a lot of time living in Japan. And Mm -hmm. when you're raised in, you know, with parents of one culture and you're raised in America, you automatically sort of, in my opinion, have this sense that, you know what, there's more than one perspective to things because you're forced to look at your life day in and day out being like, oh, well, that's the Japanese side coming in or the values here. You know, it's a little bit different. But when I was in Japan was the only time, the first time that I remember really feeling like taken aback because I was always sent to Japan from the time I was 10 to go back to spend the summer with my grandparents. And they enrolled me in the local school. And as I was in the local Japanese school, standing next to the principal, and I already had a you know a really warm welcome from my classmates, as the school dismissed, all the other kids from other grades and other classes walked by and quite a number of them were like, go home, foreigner, go home, get out of here, you don't belong. And it hit me, first of all, that mm. the principal just sort of looked at me and then looked away, like nothing was said or done. And then the second thing was this huge sense of like, wow, the in-group and the out-group is really different. People who know people personally might accept you differently than people who just see you from afar. And so I think, you know, that was in what, fourth grade or some something fifth grade. Like I was young enough to be in an elementary school in Japan. And so I think that has shaped how I've carried myself ever since. Yes. And you, Masasha? So I think there's two ways in which I look at racism is what has been directly to me personally, and then what I've seen through my family experiences. Mm. And I think being mixed race, being biracial has come in various ways, sometimes from Japanese, like Sarah has described, where it's a question of, are you Japanese enough? Um, And I saw that in college too, when I had gone to Asian Student Association events, and it was kind of like, why are you here? That was really tough for me, because I'm like, look, I spent my summers in Japan, you know, my my last name is Japanese, like I, I identify in this way. So that was challenging, but it's not anything near what my husband faces being a black man, or what my sons will face being multiracial and black presenting. We live in the Bay Area. And everyone I think likes to think of the Bay Area as a very progressive area. And that's also a very dangerous way to think about an area because you get lulled into this sense of complacency, I think, around what happens in the area. And I can think of one incident where my husband had taken my older son to play at a park near us and maybe five minutes away from our house. And we live in a white suburb in Silicon Valley. I was not there. I was super pregnant with my second son. So I was not about to go to any park, not lift in (laughs) any toddler up any slide, nothing like that. So he's at the park with our older son, who was maybe 20 months old at the time. And this white woman wearing a Princeton University t-shirt comes up to him and, you know, looks at him and says, I haven't seen you here before. And she leaves her like group of friends and their kids to come over and talk to him and like, do you, do you live around here? And so she's, she's quizzing him. And of course, my husband is like, he loves confrontation. Like he's yeah. all about it. You know, you <laughs> right. challenge like, him, he is in watch. there. Yes, yeah. he is in there. He's not going to back down. So he's, he's like, yeah, I live around here. And she's like, oh, you know, it's just that we come here a lot. And, you know, we know who comes to the park and, and I just haven't seen you before. And he's like, no, I live around here. And she's like, yeah, I just, you know, it's just, we know everyone here and, and I just don't know you. And he's pauses and he's like, 
all right, well, what does that make you? The park ranger? And right. um, she <laughs> she didn't have a comeback for that. And her friends at this point were just like, I don't know who that woman is. Like, we're just going to go the other way. But it was a very overt, you know, moment that he came home and he told me about. And I couldn't believe that. But it is not an isolated incident. And, you know, my kids have not yet been called the N-word, but I know that that will come too. And so those are the things as mothers, you just, you fear and, and you wait for. So you have this excellent resource on your website, and it's called How to Talk to Your Kids About Race. And I found it to be especially helpful. And I love just leaving the audience with tangible tips. So on here, you have six very comprehensive guidelines on what parents can do to educate themselves and then pass on that knowledge to their kids. Let's start at the beginning. You say, number one, first, look inwards. Can you extrapolate on that point? I mean, I think with any conversation that you have, you have to understand where you're coming from because it's all relative. A lot of well-meaning people will say, well, I'm not racist. And I just listened to a great talk by Ibram X. Kindi. And he's like, not racist should be eliminated from our vocabulary. You are either racist or anti-racist and you're actively working against it. Yes. And if that's the case, and, and if you've never had that conversation with anybody else, you've got to really think, give yourself a reality check, you know, look at how many friends of color do your children see you bringing into your home? How, you know, many times have you talked about that? Have you talked about the fact that probably every single person in your home has different skin tones, even if there are subtle differences? Do you have the ability, you know, what kind of style do you have? Misasha just mentioned her husband's more confrontational. I have a husband who's very anti-confrontational. And so mm. charged conversation comes up. How do you want to handle it? Sort of preparing yourself by knowing yourself, I think has to be step number one. Absolutely. The second point was to roll up your shirt sleeves and you say to do this quite literally, because when you do that, you can see your skin tone and compare it to your kid's skin tone and actually point that out, point that distinction out, right? Yeah. Kids are such visual learners and they really enjoy concrete examples, or I, I find at least my kids do. So We've literally put our arms next to each other. And for a while, they were convinced that I was very, very light brown. And so we had to have discussion. You know, yes, that's true. And, and recently, we've been able to talk more about what those colors mean and what, you know, when someone says black, what do they mean? Because we also had to unpack a little bit when my son came home from school and he told me that his he's not black because his friend has darker skin than he and he is and his friend happens to be Indian and I was like right I understand your friend has darker skin but that's not it's not just the skin color that we're talking about here but it's a great place to start especially with younger kids to really just get very concrete and literal about skin color I love it third point is once you open the door keep it open. Kind of alluding to how kids have never-ending questions, um, which is a great thing. And so you want them to be able to ask you really anything, especially when it comes to you know more of those um, tough conversations. I think that goes into if some kids if comes home from school and says, mom, so-and-so was called the N-word, as opposed to sort of shutting it down and being like, that's a bad word, don't say it, and walking away. I think it's it's kids instigate conversations all the time. Often it's the adults who are too busy or feel like it's too challenging or heavy to 
dive in with them in those opportunities. But those are the prime teaching moments because kids are asking because they're ready. They're right there being like, hey, I want to tell you something. So especially when it comes to issues like this, it's time to be like, all right, maybe I'll turn off the stove when I'm cooking dinner and like squat down face to face with you, child, and like carry on this conversation because it really is only going to last another minute or two. It's not, kids aren't interested in lengthy hour long conversations about these all the time. It may just really be that moment. And so to use your kids' interests in that moment is really powerful. Yes. Yes. The next one was to read with them. Can you tell us more about what you do with your kids and and reading to them, having those books embody what anti-racism is? Yeah, I think it's so important because if you look at children's books, a lot of times you'll see the protagonists are white. They're able-bodied. They look a certain way. And kids learn so much from reading. When they're younger, having you read to them. When they're older, reading themselves. And so I think it's so important for them to see diverse kids in books doing ordinary things, like everyday things. And it's also very important for them to see diverse kids or people in books, not just kids, doing diverse things. The contrast there is that it just needs to be a part of their understanding of what life is to showcase a whole range and spectrum of individuals, not just the ones who might look like them, let's say, if they're white children or even, you know, just Black children or just Indian children or just Asian children. But also you want those books that highlight differences. Like we have books on Juneteenth and we have books on Kwanzaa and we have books, but we also have books on Diwali and we have (laughs) books on, you know, Children's Day in Japan. And just so that you can give them that big experience and especially an an understanding. And I think, and then also it's such an easy way to have those conversations too, because kids will ask questions about what they see in books. Yeah, And since you're not, you're there reading with them, you're not checking Instagram, you're not cooking, you're you're there in that moment. And so that's that most honest time where you can really just have that moment of connection with them. And that's another just sign that you're there to talk to them. And for my older son who, you know, will read everything and reads a book a day, just to have characters in books who look like him, who are doing cool things is enough. And for him, I've been buying him a lot of books of women who do cool things because, you know, we have such a, it's him and his brother and his dad. And then there's me sort of on like the outlier side of, (laughs) I know I'm not going to play, you know, I'm not going to reenact the last dance with you 25 times. Um, I'm not Michael Jordan, but here's a book about amazing women. So just to continue to broaden everyone's horizons and to continue to keep that conversation going. Yes, absolutely. And in this guide, you actually mentioned some websites that parents should definitely check out. So one is is a website, akidsbookabout.com. And there is a book on racism. So a kid's book about racism, the consciouskid.org. Love that organization. Um, and you can follow them on Instagram as well. They always have great recommendations of books and have really kept us in the know during the Black Lives Matter movement. And the other website is commonsensemedia.org. And Coretta Scott King actually has her own book of award winners. And so she has her curated list of award winning books on race that you can check out for kids of all ages. The fifth point is to watch things together. So what are some shows or movies that you watch with your family um, and talk about after? I have a love-hate with television, if I'm honest. 
I have two girls and they're sort of elementary school level. As opposed to the things that we're watching, one of the things I was aware of and not letting them watch, American Girl has this whole series of TV shows. And it seemed at least the one that they had shown me was these really cute white cheerleader dancing type girls. And I said, I'm not sure I'm going to let you watch that. I don't think that's appropriate. You know, I want strong characters. I want diversity, blah, blah, blah. And they wound up doing research and finding an American girl segment that had a whole diversity of characters, someone in a wheelchair, like whole different abilities. And they pitched me on why they thought that meant that they should be allowed to watch that show. And so that's another way around. I think some of it is just to make them aware of what they're taking in. You know, you can obviously curate the list of what you're watching, but for me, that was it's one of my filters for them. So they're not blindly watching stuff, not even aware that like Barbie and life in the dream house is happening or something. That was a banned show from my house. So we don't have um, cable TV. We watch like on Apple TV and we watch BET um, heavily, heavily. So right now, right now we're reliving the Fresh Prince. Boys are all about the Fresh Prince. They started wearing their hat to the side. (laughs) Uh, I I kid you not. But I think it's really great because it is, they are seeing themselves and people who look like them in shows. And it gives us something to talk about too, because they do have shows in which they have very powerful messages. Like Sarah, I was talking to you about the one where, Will and Carlton are stopped by the police because they're driving one of Carlton's father's partner's cars somewhere. And so it's about how the police treat young black men, Mm. which was, you know, pretty groundbreaking at the time in terms of TV. And it's still in the sitcom format, but it makes you think. And so it's also a great way to start having those conversations with especially my older son, who's going to be needing, we're going to need to have those conversations with him more frequently. And even, you know, my younger son. So it's, it's a great way for them to see people who look like them, but also a great um, entrance into continuing to have conversation about race and racism and what that looks like in our country. In fact, one of those examples, my husband, while I was gone for a couple nights, decided that it would be a brilliant time to let the kids start watching The Amazing Race. And his sales pitch was, hey, they're traveling around the world. It's a great opportunity to show the kids different, both different people interactions within the contestants and then all these places that they're traveling. But my kids, because we have these conversations reflected back to me, there was one, a black couple, and they were traveling through Africa and they commented, wow, this is the first time that I've been around everybody who looks like me. And my kids picked up on that and they said, wow, can you imagine that? Like, that's interesting to hear and say, hear people say that. That must be such a different experience than what we're going through. So, you know, once you open that door of conversation, kids really do pick up on moments like that, that might be in passing, but they hear it differently. Yes. Yes. And it's so remarkable to hear them share their thoughts on that. The sixth point that you mentioned was to just keep the conversation going. You know, as they get older and mature, you can talk about so much more and relate to them on a deeper level. When is a good time to start pointing out these differences? I mean, I think it's an interesting question because I think from my understanding, and Sasha, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like families, especially black families talk to like their kids, you just grow up talking about it from the time that they just exist. You know, for me, I didn't find it was too young when my child was two, when she was talking to me about coloring. 
And this was before Crayola's like skin color crayon set. But she said, mom, I'm coloring, you know, can I have the skin color crayon? And I was like, hold on, what does a skin color crayon mean? And then, you know, we, that's when we unpacked, literally did the arm to arm thing. What does skin color mean? What would you name your skin color? She called it peach. Well, then let's look for a peach crayon and that's fine, you know, but everybody has different colors. So they get that even from that age. You know, we've been having these conversations at home for years and, I remember when I think she was in third grade, there's two different conversations to have. One is, yes, everybody has different skin color and we love everybody and 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 that's okay to just say that. But I think it's really important to begin teaching people or teaching kids, okay, I, I know we can say we love all people, but you need to understand that society will treat people with black skin differently. Because if you're going to be a good friend to your, like you may not be able to, to do the same thing, or your friend might not be able to do the same things if they're black, you know, they would be taught to not talk back to the police. You may or may not get away with it, but they certainly would not, you know, uh, or, or that sort of thing. So if you're going to be a good friend, you need to understand that there's value that society places differently and that you need to speak up and fight against it. And so when in third grade, when my daughter came home from school one day, she said, mom, this kid in her class, she was like, he started crying. Like he ran in after recess and was hiding behind me crying. And I asked what's going on. And he said he was called the N word. And so I asked him, you know, you got to tell the teacher. And he didn't want to, because he didn't think the teacher would believe him. And so she's like, well, we, I'll come with you. Let's go together and let's go do it. You know, I don't say this to raise my kid as some like hero. It's not a, it's what you would expect someone to do, but it was because she had already known that the N word is probably the worst word you could ever call a human being and that sometimes you need to help out in a way when your friend's hurting. So, you know, it's even from third grade, which is way before tweens, you can do it. Now she knows as my, you know, she's entering tweenhood that George Floyd was killed by a police officer who knelt on his neck. She can understand that. And the difference being my children present as white no matter how much that might freak her out that that is happening in the world, for her, it's always going to be happening to someone else. So she's not directly affected by it, I think. And it's important to realize when you think about, oh, I don't want to freak my kid out by talking to her about race and the ugly realities of what's happening out there. Imagine being a black family and having to tell your kids that this is the reality of the world. And now kids are afraid for their own lives. That's a whole different weight for people who present as black in this country, raising black presenting children. So I think it's important, especially for white presenting families to have that conversation so that people can understand, kids can understand, they they see it, they know what's happening. Yes. No, I, I think it's really eye-opening that you are being so open in your home like that. You know, Sarah and I were on that same call, the Dr. Kendi call yesterday about how to be an anti-racist. And he was talking about racism and something I discuss with my husband a lot as in its construct, racism is about power. And I think that if we who identify as minorities or, you know, people who are not in the controlling narrative, if there is divisions or if we are not able to support each other or worse, start coming at each other, then white supremacy, that whole concept will win. And so I think that's particularly important like you mentioned, there are areas in which Asians are 
privileged in in certain constructs, right? And I think that or or we're not the minority in certain constructs. And so I think that that's so important then to use even more important to use our voices to continue to draw attention to where we should all be and not just look at where we are individually, because it's so easy to be very divisive now, especially in times like this, where you're concerned about, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. This is one of those times where then we can be able to make real change, because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So all we've got is today and each other. So which, you know, just heightens that importance. I mean, I would go a step further to say that any moms listening on the call, people who identify as women, women are not the controlling narrative either. And so as a woman, especially, we have so much power that we don't realize and we could really continue to support this. And we should because we are also, all women are also not in that power zone and could benefit, you know, from banding together. We talk so much about feminism and how in the past, all these things that have happened for women, like the right to vote and just so much. We've had black women, women of color fighting alongside white women to get it. But the moment it's achieved, white women are like, actually, no, like you don't get it, black people. You don't get this privilege, even though everyone was involved in the fight. And we need to recognize that we are women first, not white people first. Right. Absolutely. And can you just share a little bit more about being mixed race? Yeah, it's I I got in sort of a very heated argument with my parents around the time of George Floyd's murder because they were talking about, okay, but you're not going to go protest, right? Because that seems very dangerous. And like, we want just want you to be safe. And I'm like, mom, like, and dad, my dad was largely silent, because if you know, my parents, my mom does all the talking. I can't not do this, because I'm trying to save my kids someday, because George Floyd on the ground, that could be my husband on the ground, that could be my boys on the ground, yelling my name. And I need to make sure that that is not going to happen. And so but it was such a, a moment where I was like, so upset that my parents couldn't see this at the and and I know where they're coming from too and that's the thing like but it's not something that they will understand in the same way i mean they understand it for their grandkids absolutely but they don't understand that same feeling in that same way and so and i mean my dad has faced racism being a japanese immigrant but it is not the same and so that has been like an ongoing conversation. And after my initial like fury and rage and, you know, about 25 emails later, because that's how my family handles it, we email each other. <laughs> you know, I, I think we are in a much better place. And it actually created a lot more open dialogue between us because we were, we largely didn't grow up talking about race in that way. And especially not racism in the United States in the same way. Like I was very aware of racism in the United States. I knew that it happened, but it was not something that touched my life in the same way. How would you want to encourage this next generation to make a change? So much of children's, what they're told, the messaging is, you can be this one day. You can be a firefighter one day. You can be a great lawyer one day. And you know, when they're small, that makes sense. But by the time they're sort of tweens and up, they actually can start making a difference right now. And they are good enough right now. And there are organizations out there like Peace First. I mean, in Colorado, there's Colorado Youth Congress. There are 
already organizations established to allow children who have vision, who have a passion and who have this drive to make change to start doing it now, whether it's in certain neighborhoods, schools are named after people that we shouldn't be honoring and the students petition themselves to get that school name changed. You know, there are ways to empower students and, and let them feel that their voice matters as opposed to waiting till one day they have all the check marks and ducks in a row and they can make the change later. So giving them the tools, whether it's a little seed money or some structure or finding a program, if you don't want to do it yourself as a parent, you know, letting them really play out some of their ideas makes sense. I agree. And, but a lot of that comes from the parents too. Like it has to be parent driven. This is something that even if you are raising white presenting children, and I've heard this now from schools and parents where there's just even, you know, this attitude of not caring because it doesn't necessarily affect you. And I think we all have to be past that now. Like we all have to fundamentally agree that we need to care um, about humanity, period. And so in order to do that, we have to be continue to have those conversations that we were talking about and continue to make sure that your social circle and your kid's social circle is diverse. It's not just a group of people who look exactly like you, because that is the easiest way to break down those perceived barriers to that different narrative. Yes. Yes, exactly. Is there a mom sense experience that you had that you'd like to share? And by mom sense, I mean our superpower of intuition and how it kind of led you on the right track. So one of the funny stories that I wanted to share was this time where one of my kids said, I don't feel so good today, mom. Like if I throw up, do I have to go to school tomorrow? And already my brain kind of went, Oh, that seems a little different than I don't feel good. And the next morning she sort of pokes her head out and is like, mom, I threw up. And I'm like, get dressed and get down here. And sure enough, I go upstairs and she had carried a freaking applesauce squeezy packet upstairs to her room the night prior and dumped it in a trash bin to pretend it looked like vomit. So I sniff it and I'm like, this is applesauce. And I find this little applesauce container like hidden behind her toilet. And I'm like, that was premeditated fakeness. But you know, then I was like, okay, why? What's going on? And that, you know, I knew she was lying, but then I got to dig into what was happening and why she was trying to get out of school more and stuff. So it led me down to a good path. But it was, I was like, I knew she was faking it from the day before. Right. Good for you. <laughs> and what about you, Natasha? The one thing I always trust my intuition on is the number of band-aids that my kids will go through in any given week. It's like I need to buy three to four boxes at Target every time I go because they, I, I don't even know what it is. Are they eating them? I, who knows at this point, but there are, um, we have some questionable uses for band-aids in this house all, all on their bodies. Um, it's just, I was like, if it's not bleeding, I don't think you need that. But yes. So we go through um, our favorite are the Pokemon ones, but yes, we will go through all of them. That's so funny. I love it. <laughs> Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? One, I have two. One, Misasha and I share. So maybe I'll leave that to you depending on what your quote is, Misasha. But one of them is, I am enough. Like I've, I've achieved the point where it was my favorite mantra for so long because I didn't know if that was true. And now I have hit the point where it is true. And I am enough. And like, 
this pandemic has allowed me to be like, you know what, I, I, I could, I could stay up all night and work and get more stuff done and be productive, but I know what my boundaries are and I am worth it to hold those boundaries so I can show up better. I have not like what I'm doing is enough, not in the complacent, I don't have to try hard anymore, but that I'm worth taking care of and that I don't have to beat myself up anymore. Yeah. So I love that. So the quote I think Sarah is referring to is sort of the quote that the podcast lives by, which is, um, we rise by lifting others. So we firmly believe that it has to be all of us in it together and that we pull each other up through our shared humanity. So that's the podcast quote. If I had to say a personal quote, I think it's also be the change because I think it's very easy to wait for something to happen or to wait and be reactive. But I think what recent events have shown us is that we all can do this. We all can take small actions, big actions, whatever, but some action to be the change. Yes. Very well said. It's now time for Mom Hall when we share products we love. Is there a product or app or really anything that you are just loving right now? It's a life changer for you. Does Peloton count? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I realize that it's so, so privileged for me to be able to say that, but it was a couple of years ago that we decided that for mental health reasons that basically I was like, look, I'm not getting out there enough to exercise and keep my brain healthy and push myself. And so we made the leap to invest in it. And it was like the best thing we could have done, not realizing that a global pandemic was going to shut everything right. else down. <laughs> But it has not only been my sanity, my husband is absolutely obsessed. He set this crazy goal of riding 500 miles this month. It has been the go-to now that my kids are old enough. When I know they're getting squirrely and like the Just Dance dance parties on YouTube are not cutting it for their daily exercise, Some of they, they get on the Peloton and they do a short ride and they feel like they're sweating. And so um, that has been a lifesaver for us. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I have two. One is more of like a website. It's this female founder collective where they sell all sorts of products. It's called Doe and they specialize in um, products also with a social message. So a couple of my favorite products and Sarah and I are doing some female founder interviews later this month or next month, which I'm super excited about because this website just has everything from fashion to like all the candles you would ever want to CBD products. to mm. shoes. So it's sort of health, wellness, beauty, everything. And they have separate hashtags, black girl magic, brown girl magic. So you can search and support minority female owned businesses too, which I love. And the second thing that Sarah and I also love is the Dyson Airwrap, which is like, uh, I was waiting for you to say it, Sarah. So when you said Peloton, I was like, fine, I'll do the Dyson Airwrap. I have a huge mountain of hair and lesson like 1 billion that I learned in quarantine is never say to your hairstylist, I don't need a trim um, right before you go to shelter in place. So the Dyson Airwrap has sort of been, it is also a ridiculously sort of privileged product out there, but I don't know. There's something about curling my hair every couple of days that is now my me time, I guess, that um, it's all worthwhile. Yeah, I feel that. No. <laughs> and then my mom hall is um, one that you mentioned. 
on your list, but it's the Conscious Kid. I love their curated website. It's an education research and policy organization. And they have resources on their website, a really great grid on Instagram that has, you know, books and, you know, all sorts of resources for kids to teach them about race and and Black Americans. So check it out, Conscious Kid. And I want to thank you both for dedicating an entire podcast to conversations just like this. We need more of them out there. We need these dialogues. The fact that you came up with a concept, Dear White Women, is um, brilliant, you know, and there's some episodes I want to highlight of your show to my listeners. One was uh, The Hard Conversations You Need to Have with Your Kids with Antonio Wint. There was a show, Why Aren't Black Kids Playing Baseball? How to Be an Ally When You Feel Overwhelmed, and um, one that you had done with Shanicia Boswell. Black Moms Changing Perspectives. So that's just, you know, a handful of episodes that you've done on this topic and so many others that I feel are so crucial for us to hear and be a part of. So thank you so much. And where can our listeners find you? All of our information is centralized on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. And you can find us most actively on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter's at DWW Podcast. And really, I think the best thing to, to do is to sign up for your email list because we have things like, you know, because we believe that this is a long-term process, we think we just need to take little action steps every day, whether it's watching a music video by a Black artist that we might not have otherwise watched or reading an article. So we have a weekly action calendar that just sends out little things you can do every day. So if you sign up for our email list at the website, you'll be able to get that information just spoon-fed to you. Amazing. Sarah, Misasha, thank you so much. This was so enlightening. I am so, so thankful for our talk today. Thanks so much for having us on. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. And as Sarah and Misasha mentioned, definitely subscribe to their podcast, Dear White Women, wherever you listen. I hope this conversation was eye-opening for you and inspires you to have a different conversation at the dinner table today with your um, partner and with your kids because it's really, really never too early. Um, yes, it's a tough conversation, but the more that we talk about it, the more that we hear their, their insights and perspectives and answer their questions, the more awareness they'll have. And in fact, they can be the ones um, who go back to their peers and are educating. So you really want to empower your kids um, to have that knowledge. Thank you again for listening to my podcast. Um, if you have any suggestions for show topics or guests who have to be on the show, email me at that's total mom sense at gmail.com. And of course, um, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. So you never miss an episode and leave me a review. I really appreciate your feedback and, um, they help. So you can leave them wherever you listen, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor really everywhere. <laughs> Remember, always trust your mom's sense. Stay strong, super mamas. See you next time. That's total mom sense.